The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 15 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC15. This is Secret Church 15, Episode 2. So, the gospel of Christ, greatest offense. So, here's why I call it the greatest offense. It's obviously common today for Christians to to be labeled insulting for their views on social issues. So it's offensive, increasingly offensive to an ever-expanding number of people to say that a woman who has feelings for another woman should not express love for her in marriage. So it doesn't take long for a Christian to be backed into a corner on that issue, not wanting to be offensive, but wondering how to respond. But this is where I want us to realize from the beginning that a biblical view of homosexuality, which we'll talk about later, is nowhere near the greatest offense in Christianity. The gospel itself is a much, much, much greater offense. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us this. So I put a simple definition of the gospel that started your notes, and I just want to unpack it and think about how offensive it is. The gospel, the good news that the just and gracious creator of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful men and women and sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross, to show his power of sin in the resurrection, so that everyone who turns from their sin in themselves and trusts in Jesus as Savior and Lord will be reconciled to God forever. So in that gospel statement, we see central claims about who God is, who we are, why Jesus is unique amidst all the religious leaders of the world. Why is Christianity unique among all the religions of the world? As a result, what we we must do in response to this gospel, the good news, and what is at stake and how we respond. So let's start with who God is. Offense of the gospel, beginning with the very first words of the Bible, in the beginning, God. That statement is mammoth. Because from the very beginning, the Bible asserts that there's one God who is the creator of all. That he, there is a God who created every one of us, which means we belong to him. We're sustained by him as self-sufficient as we may try to be. We ultimately do not sustain ourselves. Only God does that. We belong to him. We're sustained by him and we're accountable to him. We, you and I will answer to God. This God is the creator of all. He's holy above all, which means he's perfect, period, in every way. He's without equal and he's without error. He's completely unlike us in his perfections and his purity. And as a part of his holiness, he's just. And he will judge us with his perfect justice. So the beginning point, the stark reality of the gospel is that there is a God who will judge every single person in this gathering. Every single person in this room and every room represented tonight. There's a God who will judge you and he will be just. Thankfully, this holy God is also good. He's good, and we can trust his goodness. The Lord is good to all, his mercies over all that he's made. Not only is he good, this God is gracious, which means the just God does not give us what justice deserves when we turn to and trust in him. So just sit back and think for a second about the offense already being created here. You tell any modern man or woman that there is a God who sustains, owns, defines, rules, and one day will judge him or her, and that person will balk in offense. Every person, any person would. And the reality is every person has, which leads to who we are. According to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, we are created by God, formed by him, Psalm 139, which we'll come back to in a minute on abortion. We're created by God, but we're also corrupted by sin. This is the human condition. We're beautiful in the sense we're created by God, yet broken because we've turned from God. John Stott sums it up really well in that paragraph that I put in there. And that's, this is evident from the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis 2 contains a clear command from God to eat from any tree except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is a story that many in the church are familiar with, but sometimes we, we don't ask the question, okay, so what's wrong with knowing the difference between good and evil? And why 
Why can't you eat from that tree? This is what we've got to realize. This is not about mere information concerning good and evil. This is all about the determination of good and evil. In other words, for the man and woman to eat from this tree was to reject God as the one who determines good and evil and to assume that responsibility themselves. So see what the temptation in the garden is all about. It's a temptation to rebel against God's authority and in the process make humans the arbiters of morality, which is exactly what they did in Genesis 3. They doubted God's goodness. They questioned God's word. They spurned his authority. Do you notice in Genesis 3, First time we ever see a question in the Bible, and it revolves around God's word. Satan says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And that's where sin starts. It starts with questioning God's word. And it's not just Adam and Eve, it's all of us. We all take commands from God, and we turn them into questions about God. After all, okay, is God really holy? Does he really know what is right? Is God really good? Does he really know what is best for me? And amid questions like that, notice what's happening. Man and woman subtly asserting themselves not as the ones to be judged by God, but as ones who sit in judgment of God, rejecting his authority as the determiner of good and evil. And in the process, relativizing all morality. And when we realize this, this is so important, we realize that the moral relativism of the 21st century is nothing new. Whole conversation about marriage, for example, today revolves around a rejection of how God has defined marriage to say, we know better than God does what is best for our families. And at the root of that claim is a conviction that morality changes with the times. There are no moral absolutes. Moral is, feel, is what feels right or best to you at a certain time in a certain place, which is exactly what secular philosophy would have us believe. Just listen to Michael Roos, noted agnostic philosopher of science. He said, the position of the modern evolutionists, therefore, is that morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth, considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective meeting, so objective something, it is illusory. In other words, morality is illusory. It changes. So that which was common in the United States even 20 years ago is now totally questioned because morality changes over time. Similarly, famous atheist Richard Dawkins wrote, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect it. If there is, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no other good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. In other words, there are no objective moral foundations in the world. There's just DNA. It's a product of evolutionary development. We dance to its music. That's exactly the worldview that is prevailing in American culture today. A worldview that says society determines right and wrong. Whatever culture deems right, whatever is right, whatever culture deems wrong is wrong. But just stop and think about the frightening implications of that worldview. Take an issue like sex trafficking. Are we really going to conclude that as long as the society approves of that industry, that it's no longer immoral? Are we willing to tell young girls sold into sex slavery that they and the men who take advantage of them are merely dancing to the, their DNA? That what's happening to them is not inherently evil. They're just products of a blind, pitiless indifference that's left them unlucky in the world. Not one of us would say that to one of those girls. But that is the fruit of a secular worldview that currently dominates our culture. I think about a conversation I had with a friend, self-identified pagan, who summed up his philosophy of life. He said, doing no harm to others, be true to yourself. And so my friend thought that supposedly simple philosophy was sufficient to make value, judgments, moral decisions in life. The glaring problem behind that entire worldview, though, was who defines harm? 
And to what extent we should be true to ourselves? After all, wouldn't a pimp in northern Nepal claim that he's creating a better life for a young girl whose chance of living was slim to begin with? Might he also claim that she has a job he believes she enjoys and wants to keep that pimp from arguing that he and this girl are helping scores of men be true to the sexual cravings they have within themselves? This is where the gospel is totally countercultural and offensive because the gospel claims that being true to ourselves is not the answer. That's actually the problem. The gospel starts with the realization that we are centered on ourselves, centered on self, and this is the root of sin. The gospel claims that although we're created in God's image, we've all rebelled against him in our independence. It looks different in every one of our lives, even in this room, but every one of us, all of us are like Adam and Eve in that garden. We think, even if God says to do something, we're going to do it anyway. Not to do something, we're going to do it anyway. In essence, we say, every time we sin, God's not Lord over me. God doesn't know what is best for me. I define what's right and wrong, good and evil. Whatever seems or feels right to me is right for me. And in the end, for all of us, ultimately, it's about me. Romans 5 makes clear this is not just about Adam and Eve. It's about us. The Bible diagnoses our condition in Romans 3 by simply saying we've all turned aside to ourselves. The essence of sin is the exaltation of self. God has designed us to put him first in our lives, others second, and ourselves last. Sin totally reverses the order. We put ourselves first, others next many times in an attempt to use them for ourselves, and God somewhere, if anywhere, in the distant background. And the fruit of this is all over our lives and our culture. Because we've turned from God to ourselves, we're morally evil, Genesis 8.21. We're spiritually sick, Matthew 9.12. We're slaves to sin, John 8.34. Jesus says everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Which we don't think of ourselves as slaves, but think about it. It's easy to see, to take an alcoholic, for example, getting drunk because he believes that's the path to personal satisfaction. In reality, he's enslaved to an addiction that's leading to his ruin. But it's not just the alcoholic. Sin works the same way in all of our lives, small ways, big ways. We tell ourselves, no matter what God says, that a lustful thought here, a harsh word there, a selfish action, that will satisfy us. We persuade ourselves, no matter what God says, the money we have, regardless of how we get it, the sex we experience with whoever we want it, will gratify us. We convince ourselves, no matter what God says, we're going to be pleased with this person or that possession, this pleasure, that pursuit. We chase all these things thinking we're free, but we're blind to our own bondage. And all are running to serve ourselves. We're actually rebelling against the only one who can satisfy our souls. We're slaves to sin, blinded to truth, covering up our guilt by confusing our standards. We think, well, the Bible's outdated, impractical. Greed's not wrong. It's necessary in the good of ambition. Promoting ourselves is the only way to be successful today. Lust is natural for contemporary men and women. Sex is expected regardless of marriage or gender. And in all our supposed seeing, we don't realize how blind we are. The Bible's clear. We're children of wrath, deserving the judgment of God. That judgment is death, physical and spiritual. We are spiritually dead. See how the gospel diagnoses the human condition in a very countercultural way. But thankfully does not leave us there. Enter Jesus and now see why Jesus is unique. See why Jesus is not just one of many good options among religious teachers to follow. Why he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. What a statement in John 14, 6. As if the gospel were not already offensive enough with the announcement of who God is, who we are, now we hear that Jesus is the only person in all of human history who is able to reconcile us to God. No other path sufficient. No other leader supreme. If you want to know God, seven billion people in the world, there's only one way, through Jesus. 
So is that true? I mean, how can a man in his right mind 2,000 years ago make that claim? And how can people in their right mind 2,000 years later believe it? And it only makes sense if everything we've seen in the Bible is true. Think about it. We've seen that God is completely holy, infinitely good, perfectly just, lovingly gracious. We've also seen that we're created by God, but also corrupted by sin. We've turned away from God and stand guilty in sin before him. Those twin realities set up the ultimate problem in all the universe. How can a just God save rebellious sinners who are due his judgment? Look at Proverbs 17, 15, which I had earlier under God's justice. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Catch that. God detests those who call the guilty innocent and those who call the innocent guilty because he's just. He's a good judge. He calls the guilty guilty and the innocent innocent. So when God comes to you and me as a good judge, what will he say to us? Answer, inevitably, is guilty. If he were to say innocent, he would be an abomination to himself. That is a problem. Every man and woman guilty before God. So then how can God express his justice without condemning every sinner in the world? In other words, how can God love us when his justice requires condemning us? The fundamental problem in all the universe. Now, to be sure, not the problem that most people identify. Most people in our culture are not losing sleep over how it's possible for God to be just and loving towards sinners at the same time. Instead, most people are accusing God, saying, how can you punish sinners? How can you let good people go to hell? The question the Bible asks is exactly the opposite. God, how can you be just and let guilty sinners into heaven? And the only solution to that problem is Jesus Christ. There is one God and there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And here is what is utterly unique about him. His life displayed the righteousness of God. This is the identity of Jesus. Every detail here important. He's fully man, human like us, fully God, divine like God. And in both his humanity and deity, he is without sin. Without sin, he never rebelled against God, which means he, as a man, human, was innocent before God, had no price to pay for sin. He did not deserve death. Yet he died, which begs the question, why? I'm glad you asked. His death satisfied the justice of God. He died for you and me. In our place, though we had no sin for which he deserved death, he chose to take our place, to endure the judgment we deserve in our stead. That's what the cross of Christ is all about. At the cross, God expressed his judgment upon sin. He poured out all his divine judgment due sin, death upon man. At the same time, at the cross, God endured his judgment against sin. Jesus, fully human and fully divine, endured the judgment due sin. And in this way, at the cross, God enabled salvation for sinners. He died for you and me, for our sake. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the gospel, the good news, doesn't end there. After three days dead, Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus' life displayed the righteousness of God. His death satisfied the justice of God. And Jesus' resurrection demonstrated the power of God over sin and death. What other leader, much less, what other person in all of history has defeated sin and conquered death? No one, no one. I mean, talking dead for three days and coming back alive. We're not talking resuscitation, resurrection. We're not talking went to heaven, came back, wrote a best-selling book about it. We're talking <laughs> dead for, talking you go to a funeral tomorrow and you see a body put in a casket and put in the ground and dirt put over it and you walk away and we're talking next weekend, that guy comes up to you on the street and says, hello, this is unusual. That, and it's the greatest news in all the world. Death has been defeated. 
So what must we do in response to this? Which is the exact question that was asked in Acts 2.37. And the answer was, Brothers, what should we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So here's here's what the gospel compels us to do. We must repent. We must turn from our sin and ourselves. That's what repent means. To acknowledge that we've rebelled against God. Turn from our sin. Turn from centering on ourselves. That's why Jesus summarizes his call to potential disciples in Luke 9, saying, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, die to himself, and follow me. You must die to a sinful, self-centered way of living. This is what it means to follow Christ. Turn from your sin and yourself. You repent, and we must believe. We must trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Acts 30, 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved from all your sin, from death, for eternal life, for eternal life. And this is what's at stake. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See it. Eternity is at stake in how you or I respond to this gospel. Heaven is a glorious reality for all who trust in Christ. Heaven, a place, we're going to talk about this when we close tonight, a place of full reconciliation to, complete restoration with God, where sin and suffering and pain and sorrow will finally be no more. Men and women who've trusted in Christ will live in perfect harmony with God and each other. But that is not the only option. Hell is a dreadful reality for those all who die without Christ. Hell, a place about which Jesus spoke much, so a lake of fire that one day, Revelation 20, 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Tim Keller observed, if Jesus, the Lord of love and author of grace, spoke about hell more often and in a more vivid, blood-curdling manner than anyone else, it must be a crucial truth. And it is. And it's a crucial truth that flows from everything we've seen to this point. Think about it. The justice of God, hell, is a place of ultimate justice. Ultimate justice a place of fiery agony. And this is Jesus describing hell this way. This is not, don't don't just have some character of a preacher sweating and yelling about fire and brimstone. This is Jesus, the Lord of love, author of grace, talking about unquenchable fire in Mark 9, 43 through 48. A A place of conscious torment, according to Jesus in Luke 16. Conscious torment. A place of outer darkness. Jesus said it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of continual rebellion where all who didn't repent, who died in rebellion against God, will continue in rebellion against the one they now know is Lord. A place of vile association. A place of divine destruction, 2 Peter 3, 7. Divine destruction. A place of complete separation from God and His goodness, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. And ultimately, hell is a place of eternal duration. A place where agony will last, Revelation 14, forever and ever and ever, with no rest, day or night. Look at this description from Jonathan Edwards. He said, when you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul. And you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance 
any end, any mitigation, any rest at all, you will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions and millions of ages in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty, merciless vengeance. And then you will have so done when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point to what remains. This is real. It's not a fairy tale or a game. This is, it's real. We say things like, we had a hell of a time or played a hell of a game. It was a hell of a song. We have no idea what we're saying. The stakes go far beyond the culture that you and I live in right now. And so the gospel demands a decision from me and from you. And the options are simple but significant, eternally significant. One, will you turn from Jesus? Will you turn from him and continue to live for yourself? Will you choose to live without Christ now and as a result to die without Christ forever? Or, or, or will you turn to Jesus? Will you choose to die with Christ now, to die to yourself, to repent of your sin, and in so doing, to live with Christ forever, to see what's at stake? In a day when hell seems very countercultural, outdated, even unreal, hardly even talked about, so many churches hear the words of A.W. Tozer. The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. It hushes their fears and allows them to practice all pleasant forms of iniquity while death draws every day nearer and the command to repent goes unheeded. So I'm pleading for you not to let the command to repent go unheeded in your life. And then once you repent and for all who turn from your sin or have turned from your sin yourself and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, I'm pleading for you not to stay silent with his truth. Like how can we stay silent, Christian, with this gospel? Yes, it may be costly in our culture. Yes, it will not be popular for calling people to believe in Christ because heaven and hell are at stake, but surely salvation, their salvation is more important than your popularity. Surely it's worth potential offense to see a friend or family member or acquaintance save from their sins forever. In the words of A.W. Pink, what is most needed today is a wide proclamation of those truths which are the least acceptable to the flesh. What is needed today is a scriptural setting forth of the character of God, his absolute sovereignty, his inevitable holiness, his inflexible justice, his unchanging veracity. What is needed today is a scriptural setting forth of the condition of the natural man, his total depravity, his spiritual insensibility, his inveterate hostility to God, the fact that he's condemned already and the wrath of a sin-hating God is even now abiding upon him. What is needed today is a scriptural setting for the alarming danger in which sinners are, the indescribably awful doom which awaits them, and the fact that if they follow only a little further their present course, they shall most certainly suffer the due reward of their iniquities. What is needed today is a scriptural setting for the nature of that punishment which awaits the loss, the awfulness of it, the hopelessness of it, the endurable, unendurableness of it, and the endlessness of it. And coupled with that, the greatest news in all the world, that sin and death have been defeated and you can have eternal life with this God. Not based on anything you bring to the table, but based on what Christ, the one and only, has done on your behalf. It's the greatest news in all the world. So believe it. I urge you to believe. And 
proclaim it, no matter what it costs in the culture in which you live. Will you, will you pray with me? I, before we go any further tonight, as you bow your heads, let me just ask you, have you believed this gospel? Have you repented? I'm not asking if you've gone to church or been involved in church all your life. <laughs> Have you turned from your sin and yourself and trusted in Jesus as the only Savior and the sovereign Lord over your life? And there's no more important question to answer than that question. And if you have not, you're thinking, I don't know. Just, I invite you in your heart, even right now, just to say it. I receive this good news. Just to say to God, I turn from my sin and myself. And I trust, I put my trust in you. What you've done for me, Jesus. I confess that you are Lord over me. I turn from myself to trust in you. I pray that in this holy moment that God might save hundreds, even thousands of people from their sin. And then, oh God, I'm compelled to pray on behalf of all who, would, who have a warm assurance in our hearts as that question is asked because we know, we know we're safe You've saved us. We're not perfect. But you've covered over all our imperfections. And you've given us the hope of eternal life with you. So I pray, oh God, that in my heart and in the hearts of thousands of others who have that assurance, God, that you would give us a holy unrest with keeping this gospel to ourselves. God, forgive us for our silence. Forgive us for a lack of urgency in proclaiming this message in whatever culture you've put us in. And we pray from the start tonight that you would give us boldness in the days to come to proclaim this gospel in the culture you put us in. You would remove fear. You would give us conviction and courage and compassion, God, driven by compassion from you to make this good news known to people around us. And God, I, I pray, I pray that people over the next week, maybe even tomorrow morning, would come to Christ as a result of us speaking this gospel to them because of what you're doing in our hearts right now. I pray that it would be so. In this culture, in a hundred different countries around the world, and we continue to pray that it would happen in Vietnam. God, as this gospel is proclaimed, may it prove to be the power your, that you've given for salvation to those who believe. May it be so, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.